on his computer. Okay, I think it's recording now. So, okay, so uh, yeah. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel according to Luke, uh, just an overview of, of the whole book. Um, and um, going to uh, yeah, spend some time looking at sort of the different aspects of Luke. Um, and it's sort of a different way of looking at, at Luke. Normally when we read the Bible, we'll be reading it uh, section by section, just you know, one little bit at a time. But today we're going to be, uh, I guess, expanding uh, the way that we look at it and just leafing all over the book of Luke. Uh, so um, because of that, I put so, I've got some uh, verses that I'll be putting up on the screen and uh, that will help you to follow along uh, where we're going. Well, the Gospel according to Luke, uh, written by Luke, is accepted as the first of two volumes, first of two volumes that the author wrote together. Um, and that is the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is the first part, uh, which details the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the book of Acts is the second part, which details the story of the church that expanded after uh, Jesus' ascension, after Jesus rose to heaven. Luke and Acts are generally considered to be two volumes written by the same author, and that is Luke. How do we know that? Well, both Luke and Acts are addressed uh, to the same person, Theophilus, and the second volume also references the first volume. Scholars have noted that there are many stylistic similarities in the language that is used in the two volumes. The book is uh, most likely written to Gentile Christians outside of Israel. Um, and the two books sh share similar themes um, that address the issues that Gentile Christians would be facing. Uh, we see that there are parallel passages in some of the other gospels like say Matthew, uh, which have many references to places in Israel or Jewish words or customs um, because he's writing to a Jewish audience. But in Luke, we see that these Jewish words or phrases are either explained in Luke for a Gentile audience or they are replaced with equivalent words that would be more familiar to a Gentile audience. Uh, when was Luke and Acts written? Well, commentators place both volumes of Luke, Acts and Luke as being written in, say, the mid-60s. Uh, since Paul's death which occurred um, somewhere in the late 60s, uh, it's not the end of the story in Acts. It makes sense for the book to, be, to have been written while Paul was still alive, but in jail in Rome, which is where we do find him at the end of Acts. So that gives us a date in the mid 60s, uh, perhaps just a few years before Paul's death. Another reason that um, scholars favor this date is that the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70, is not explicitly mentioned in Luke or Acts, even though there are opportunities where uh, Luke could, could mention this in an, in an editorial comment, such as the prophecy of Jesus about the siege of Jerusalem, which is recorded in Luke 21. Who's the audience that Luke uh, is writing to? Uh, as I said, uh, the volumes are, are written most likely to Gentile Christians, are possibly uh, God-fearers, which is Gentiles who worship the Jewish God. Um, and in their setting, 
uh, they're possibly wondering what is their place in the community of believers because they're not Jews and maybe they're under pressure to become Jews or to conform to Jewish laws. They are facing the fact that Jesus has not yet returned and he may not in their lifetimes. And so the book is partly written to encourage Christians to patiently wait for Jesus to return. As quite a few of the parables that Luke has chosen to include talk about this. But the main reason for the book of Luke is to provide reassurance to Christians that the teachings about Jesus are true and to establish them in an orderly literary format. And we see this because Luke himself uh, tells us this and it establishes the reason for his writing uh, in Luke chapter one. So I'm going to uh, put that up on the screen so you can, uh, you can see it. In the prologue of Luke, uh, chapter one, uh, verse of the first four verses, he writes this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So we see here that Luke's desire is to join others in writing an orderly account of what happened in the life of Jesus and the early church. You can see that he wants Theophilus to know the truth, that the things that he was taught really did happen and how they happened. Who was Theophilus? Well, it appears that he was a man of some standing. He's called most excellent similar to how we might call a governor or other official, your excellency today. It could be after the custom of that day that Theophilus was his patron and may even have been the ancient equivalent of Luke's publisher. It is evident that Luke is writing for a, for a wider audience than just one man. A Gentile Christian who was uncertain of their place within what started as a Jewish movement or anyone who wanted to know the details of the truth of what really happened would benefit from reading Luke's gospel. I want to say a little bit about the reliability of Luke and, uh, and his use of eyewitness testimony. It's been known for some time that Luke is a very careful and meticulous researcher who corroborates the events that he is relating with other dates and events in the Roman Empire. And where these have been able to be checked Luke comes out as extremely accurate. In recent times, scholars have discovered a special importance as well, attached to the numerous names that we see in the gospel accounts. These names may in fact be the names of eyewitnesses that were primary sources for the authors. If we look at the stories as they are recorded, they are often written from the perspective of one of the named individuals. Think of Nicodemus, meeting Jesus at night, or Peter when he denied Jesus three times at his trial. We see Nicodemus's confusion and Peter's grief. We're seeing the stories through their eyes. Uh, we get to see their, their thoughts and feelings, uh, what happened from their perspective. A good example in Luke is that of Cleopas, 
who was one of the disciples who, along with another unnamed disciple, encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Why was Cleopas named and the other disciple unnamed? Well, as the story is written from his perspective, an obvious answer is that the story is related by Cleopas. He is the source uh, for Luke and for this story. And that's why his name is there. And there are many other examples of these kinds of occurrences. So as we approach the book of Luke, we should be aware that he is a meticulous author and researcher. And he chased down places, names and dates and was concerned to go back to, to the eyewitnesses to find out what happened from their testimony. This gives us confidence, as Luke intended that it should, that we have the true story of the events that happened in Jesus' lifetime. Well, I'm going to give you an outline now uh, of Luke. Um, what is the content of Luke's gospel? It centers completely on the life story of Jesus, the circumstances of his birth, his teaching, and his works from the earliest days through to his final week in Jerusalem, and then his death and resurrection. The book of Acts afterwards picks up the story after Jesus' resurrection to record the ascension of Jesus and the birth and expansion of the early church. You can see here an outline of Luke's gospel um, that I've created. And it has the introduction uh, to John the Baptist and Jesus in the first four chapters or almost four chapters of Luke. From chapter four through to chapter, almost to the end of chapter nine, we see Jesus' early ministry, his ministry in Galilee. From, nine, from chapter nine, verse 51, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he starts his long journey towards Jerusalem where he knows uh, he'll be facing uh, trial and execution there. And then uh, in chapter 19, Jesus reaches Jerusalem. And there we see uh, the way that uh, his teaching, his confrontation with the religious authorities there, his death and his resurrection. So these four uh, components of Luke uh, follow on the story of uh, basically based on place. Uh, first of all, the, the story of John, the, the introduction to John the Baptist and Jesus and their, uh, their birth. Uh, then Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his journey to Jerusalem, and then Jesus in Jerusalem. What are the themes uh, in Luke? Well, we learn about Jesus' message uh, from Luke uh, in the very early chapters of his, uh, of his teaching, of his ministry in Galilee. And the first time we see the content of Jesus' teaching is in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 16 to 21. And so here uh, we see that Jesus goes to Nazareth. And uh, this is the place that he's been brought up, um, the place where he, was, uh, he, he wasn't born there, but he grew up there. And so in verse 16, it tells us that he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is happening in this passage? Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61 verses one to two, which is the servant song passage. Uh, this is a highly anticipated prophecy about the coming Messiah and what he will do. And we see what he will do, uh, that he will proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so when Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he is not just saying, I am the Messiah that is foretold, although he is saying that, but he is also saying, I have come to do the things that the Messiah was foretold to do, the works of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 verse 1 to 2 is like a programmatic text for Jesus' ministry. If you want to know what the ministry of Jesus will look like, it's all here. From here on, all the way to Jerusalem, you will see him fulfilling this passage. This passage is very important in Luke's gospel, and we will see it referenced again in Luke chapter 7. Because in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, who was locked up in prison by Herod, sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus answers John uh, in the words of Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is saying, see, I have been doing the works of the Messiah. These things that were prophesied by Isaiah are being fulfilled in Israel today. Blinding, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and so on. These are the things that you, ex you should expect to see the Messiah do when he comes. And if you see them, you know that the Messiah has come. Well, we'll see more of the content uh, of, G of uh, uh, Luke's message uh, about Jesus's message in these early chapters. And the core of Jesus' message uh, as he goes around and teaching and preaching is the gospel. That is the good news and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus summarizes his own message in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, when he says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. I'm just going to put that up as well. So there are three verses that I've uh, got here. Um, chapter 4, verse 43, chapter 5, verse 20, and chapter 5, verse 32, all early uh, in Jesus' ministry where he proclaims, uh, this is, shows you what he is teaching about. And when he says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God, um, that word good news is um, also the word gospel uh, that you might have in your translations. And that word gospel is like an announcement, a heraldic announcement, the kind of announcement that is known in the ancient world when a new ruler is crowned 
or a great victory over the enemy is declared. In the case of Jesus, it's both. Jesus, the new ruler, is bringing a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, that will reign victorious over sin. And so it's the good news about the kingdom of God. And because this kingdom will reign victorious over sin, this is why Jesus routinely declares forgiveness of sins for those who come to him in faith, as we see in chapter 5, where we see the paralyzed man that is brought in by his friends uh, lowered down. And when Jesus sees the faith of the friends and the paralyzed man, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. This leads to a sharp response from the scribes and the Pharisees who see this as blasphemy. But Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins by healing the man's condition, showing that God is with him. But forgiveness also involves repentance. And Jesus calls for repentance for people to turn away from their sins. And as a summary of his own message, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees uh, and to those who are around him, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he's here. There's a turning point in Luke chapter 9. Um, so uh, we are still in this early, early period of uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, uh, but we're coming to the close of that, that ministry. And the reason chapter 9 is a turning point is because we see uh, several times, a couple of times, there's a declaration of Jesus as the, Messiah, as the Messiah. We see for the first time, Jesus beginning to foretell his death, um, foretelling how he's going to uh, head towards Jerusalem and uh, what he will face in Jerusalem. And in chapter 9, verse 51, we see the resolute setting out towards Jerusalem. In these early chapters, uh, we see that there is, a, uh, there is conflict between Jesus uh, and the religious leaders, that Jesus' message and his actions bring him into conflict with the religious leaders. And this conflict centers over a couple of, uh, a couple of key issues. First of all, who can forgive sins, as we've already seen in Luke chapter 5? Secondly, uh, the issue of Sabbath regulations. And thirdly, the issue of eating with sinners and tax or spending time with sinners and tax collectors. We've already looked at uh, the question of who can forgive sins and the, uh, the opposition that, that that arose. That was in chapter five. But in chapter six, we see that the question of Sabbath regulations starts to come up again and again. Uh, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they see that as a violation of the Sabbath. But Jesus questions that and challenges that. And he says, isn't the Sabbath for healing, for restoration, and for loving our neighbor? And so he continues to push on this point, And he will continue to do things like heal on the Sabbath, uh, to, push back on, to push back the religious leaders uh, that their view of the Sabbath is too small. At the same time, we also see that the opposition of the leaders intensifies over these chapters, these early chapters. And uh, that Jesus, he, he talks about an unresponsive generation, that as a whole, this generation is not responding in the way uh, that, that Jesus hoped for or that he's looking for. 
in the second part um, of Jesus' uh, ministry, um, from chapter 9 through to chapter 19, which is his, the uh, traveling along the road to Jerusalem, Jesus continues to confront the religious leaders over the Sabbath. In Luke 14, um, he will continue to do that. And in Luke 15, they will challenge him over eating with sinners and tax collectors. And that's where we'll see him address some of those issues as well. This confrontation along the road to Jerusalem will continue until he reaches Jerusalem. And then this confrontation reaches ahead in Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 20, the whole chapter is basically Jesus confronting the religious leaders uh, and different parties of religious leaders, the chief priests, the Sadducees, lawyers, and someone will come to him and ask him questions. And Jesus answers each one well, so well, in fact, that each party is silenced um, as, uh, as they can no longer uh, find anything to question Jesus. They brought the hardest questions to him and Jesus has answered them. At this point, Jesus turns the table on them and asks them some hard questions in return. And so there are five rounds of questions in this chapter, and that's Luke chapter 20. It's well worth reading it as a whole to see the way that uh, Jesus uh, first uh, defends himself, but then takes the attack uh, to his opponents. But let's return to uh, the, uh, the, the second part of Luke, uh, which is um, the road to Jerusalem. So the second part of Luke's ministry is actually the third section that I mentioned before, the road to Jerusalem, um, encounters with Jesus. In chapter nine, uh, we see that Jesus is resolutely setting out for Jerusalem. Um, he's, uh, it's been declared that he is the Messiah, by both Peter uh, and by God in the transfiguration. And so Jesus now um, sets out for this, what is the last part of his mission, um, which he knows is going to uh, his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. As Jesus travels along the road to Jerusalem, he travels through many places and has many encounters along this road. Uh, and I want to focus on some of these encounters. And these encounters that Jesus has, uh, they, they contain many of Jesus' most famous parables. The parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Uh, there's the parable of the dishonest manager, the great supper, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, we know these parables, and we're familiar. We may be familiar with some of them. Um, and yet it's very important for us to think about the context that Jesus is speaking these parables into. Um, first of all, the overall context that Jesus is on a journey towards Jerusalem, towards his own death, but also the immediate context of each parable, that is, who is he, who is he speaking them to? It's worthwhile to pay attention to the setting that Jesus is in um, and who he's addressing. Because the question that Luke asks us um, is who do we find ourselves identifying with? What is the audience that Jesus is speaking to? And are we identifying with them? Will we be like the Pharisees and tax collectors, I mean, the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejecting Jesus? Or will we be, will we be like those who responded in faith and repentance? For instance, in chapter 14, he is invited to the banquet of one of the leading Pharisees, where he is mingling. Uh, presumably with other Pharisees. And he tells a parable about humility. 
in response to seeing guests vying for the best places of honor. And it is at this banquet that Jesus is at that he tells the parable of the, of the great banquet to challenge those who arrogantly think that they will be automatically invited to God's banquet because of their righteousness. In chapters 15 and 16, Jesus is spending time in eating with sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees complain about that. And so it is to them that he directs his parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, to challenge them to have God's compassion on the lost. It is while Jesus is talking to the Pharisees that he confronts their love of money and tells them that it is not possible to serve both God and money. So these are the settings in which we see uh, Jesus' parables, and it's, it, it helps us to understand uh, why Jesus spoke these parables and what is the point of these parables as well. In chapters 17 to 19, Jesus is back on the road, uh, followed by the crowd and together with his, his disciples. And he continues to have uh, multiple encounters uh, with different groups. And as we read these encounters, then it's also important to pay attention to the links between these stories. Uh, for instance, in chapter, back in uh, chapter 14, as I mentioned, Jesus told this parable about who will be invited to the great banquet of God. So the question of who can enter the kingdom of God is a question that has been raised. The Pharisees naturally assumed that they are the ones to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus undercuts that assumption and says, no, rather it's the poor, the blind, the lame, the sinners and the outcasts who God invites. This topic comes up again in Luke chapter 18. People are bringing little children to Jesus and the disciples are, are shooing them away. But Jesus, Jesus intervenes uh, and he says to them, Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So we see that we must enter the kingdom like a little child, open, welcoming, trusting. The opposite of a little child is the person with great wealth and power someone who has great self-confidence, someone who is proud, self-reliant, someone wealthy enough to buy privilege. And we meet that person in the very next verse, in the person of the rich young ruler. Despite having everything, or more precisely because he has everything, he is not able to enter the kingdom of God and walks away sad. He is the opposite to a little child, a rich person who has great trouble entering the kingdom of God. And afterwards, Jesus says that it is virtually impossible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. One chapter later, and we meet Zacchaeus, a rich man who by the end of his story enters the kingdom of God. How is that possible? Well, as Jesus says, not with man, but with God. Jesus comes to Jericho as he is still journeying, journeying towards Jerusalem. And Zacchaeus, a grown man, climbs a tree in his enthusiasm and eagerness to see Jesus. Jesus stops under the tree and addresses him and comes and stays at his house and then declares that salvation has come uh, to him. 
In Australia, where I grew up, I climbed a lot of trees as a young boy. In fact, all the way through to my teenage years. But that's not something that I've done in a really long time since I became an adult. Do you see the link between these stories? Zacchaeus, in his eagerness to see Jesus, becomes like a little child. Climbing trees is not generally something that adults do. Zacchaeus is a rich man and a chief tax collector, but that's not how he enters the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus enters the kingdom of God not as a rich man, but like a little child. So how do we respond to Jesus? Uh, what kind of response uh, is Jesus looking for? We've already seen that throughout this gospel, Jesus confronts those who have unbelief or hostility against him. And Jesus is constantly looking for faith and repentance as the teaching, uh, as a response to his teaching and presence. When it comes to responding to Jesus, there are three models um, in, uh, in Luke uh, that I want to draw your attention to. The first is the centurion, uh, the second is the healed Samaritan leper, and the third one is, uh, we will return to the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus is looking for faith and repentance. And in the centurion, Jesus finds a faith that he has not found even throughout all of Israel. Uh, Jesus says, uh, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel, speaking about the centurion. See, the centurion is one who trusted that Jesus had the power to speak and heal even without his presence. Uh, he trusted Jesus's word, uh, even from a distance. And if you, if you remember that uh, the book of Luke is most likely to be written to Gentile Christians, well, here is somebody who is a Gentile, a Roman uh, in Israel, and of whom Jesus says he has not found such great faith even in Israel, he is contrasted with the response or the, uh, the, the, the non-response of uh, the generation um, of Israel who failed to respond in faith to Jesus. The second, second person that I want to draw your attention to is the healed Samaritan leper in Luke chapter 17. He responds by, uh, when he's healed, he comes back to Jesus and thanks him. Uh, and gives glory to God. And Jesus says, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has saved you. So again, we see a foreigner is the one, a Samaritan, is the one who comes and returns to give praise to God and comes in faith. And Jesus said, it's him that is saved, even though all of them are healed. And lastly, uh, with repentance. Uh, again, we go, come back to the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, and in, in the book of Luke, we see that the fruit of repentance expresses itself concretely, especially in how we treat others. Zacchaeus exhibits repentance. He was a rich man, uh, and yet he now uses his riches to enrich others. As he says to Jesus, uh, look, uh, I give away half my uh, riches to, uh, to the poor and anyone who I've cheated, uh, I will repay them four times over. And I guess as a, a chief tax collector, 
Zacchaeus was a, was a man of great privilege. And he, it seems that he used that privilege uh, to abuse his position, um, to cheat others. And now he says that he will uh, repay that, not twice over as the law requires, but four times over. And so instead of using, uh, he, he changes from being a person who uses his, his wealth to enrich himself to now enriching other people. This is the uh, repentance that uh, Jesus celebrates and declares that salvation has come to this house. So what are some tips that we can take away, I guess, when we uh, come to read a book, the book of Luke, which is actually the largest uh, of all the Gospels? Well, uh, first of all, we, we know that it's a trustworthy account. Uh, Luke has gone to great lengths uh, to uh, look through the other accounts, to interview the eyewitnesses, uh, to record their stories, uh, to corroborate, corroborate his facts with um, other facts, uh, the other dates and times. And so we know that we can trust his account. Secondly, I would say watch for the connections. And we see the way that these stories connect up with one another and that it is, in fact, a coherent story. It's not just a collection of, um, of sayings and parables of, of kind of wise sayings of the teacher. Um, there is an overall movement um, of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem uh, that informs the rest of the stories and the parables and, and what he's doing. <clears throat> Thirdly, I'd say think about your own response that is reflected in the response of those who meet Jesus. Know that Jesus is looking for repentance and faith and follow the examples of those who respond in that way. Don't be like the Pharisees uh, and the religious leaders who uh, found ways to be offended by Jesus, who continue to question Jesus, but instead uh, follow the examples of uh, of the centurion, of the healed Samaritan leper, uh, of Zacchaeus, and respond in faith, in thanksgiving, and repentance. Let's pray uh, as we close up here uh, and ask for um, this, uh, for us to respond uh, in the way that Jesus is looking for. Father God, we ask that uh, you would help us to, uh, to come to the book of Luke and uh, to come to the person of Jesus that's there and uh, to respond to him in the way that he's asking us to. Uh, we know that Jesus is looking for responses of faith, of thanksgiving, of repentance. Um, and we ask that you would help us to come to him in this way. Uh, help us to, to see Jesus for who he truly is um, the Messiah, um, your chosen son, and uh, to, to, to change our lives, to turn our lives um, so, that they would, so that we would be able to, to trust in him, have faith in him, uh, to trust in him as our Lord and our Saviour, and to put our lives uh, at, um, at his feet, at his service. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back over to you, Sam. You stopped recording? You stopped recording?
Uh, let me stop.